Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This is our seventh episode, and we are delighted that our first six offerings seem to have gone down pretty well. We've got a whole load more episodes recorded, and our conversations keep flowing in all manner of interesting directions. But we'd still love to get some feedback from you, dear listener, so please do email in your thoughts, comments, suggestions or musings, and perhaps we'll do a special episode in the future and read out some of our favourite listener contributions. Send your thoughts to cinemaautism at gmail.com. Before we get to today's episode, we've got something exciting happening in the autumn that we think you should know about. From the 16th to the 28th of September, we'll be screening a selection of films for the Barbican's autism and cinema season, from biopics to documentary, a classic David Lynch movie, and a curation of short films created by autistic filmmakers. This is a season set to challenge, inspire, and change a few minds for the better. Tickets are on sale now via the Barbican Cinema in London, and we very much hope to see you there. In today's episode of the Autism Through Cinema podcast, our regulars, Georgia, David, Alex, John James and Janet, are joined by a very special guest, PhD student Ethan Lyon. The film Under Scrutiny is the 1942 horror classic Cat People. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Uh, welcome everybody to another episode of uh, Autism Through Cinema podcast. Uh, my name is David Hartley. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the 1942 film Cat People. Uh, before we get to that though, let's just say hello to everybody who's in the room. Um, I'm joined by uh, Janet Harbord. Hello. Uh, Alex Wooderson. Hello. Hi Alex. You've woken up. <laughs> uh, John James Laidlaw. Hello. Hi. And Georgie Kamari Bradburn. Hi. Um, and yeah, as I say, today we're, we're going to be talking about the film Cat People, but we are joined by a very special guest today. Um, we are delighted to welcome uh, Ethan Lyon with us today. Uh, Ethan, would you like to uh, introduce yourself and tell, you, tell us a little about yourself? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, thank you very much for having me and uh, good morning, everybody. Yes, uh, I'm Ethan Lyon. I'm a uh, former uh, Queen Mary student. I did my undergrad uh, uh, here, but I am currently a PhD student in uh, Southampton, uh, working on a thesis about gothic horror films and their relationship to um, autism, which is, in some respects, why I have chosen uh, cat people. Uh, I foisted cat people on the uh, on your unsuspecting uh, hosts today. Thank you. Great. Well, um, it's customary at the beginning of each of our episodes to get the person who has uh, suggested the film to uh, give a little bit of an introduction to the film and an overview as to why uh, we want to look at this film in regards to autism. So I, I will hand it over to you, Ethan, and if you want to take it away and tell us a little bit more about Cat People, and then we'll, uh, we'll get going with the discussion. I would love to. So Cat People is, uh, as said already, is a 1942 uh, horror film uh, produced by RKO and uh, specifically from the mind of Val Luton. It's directed by Jacques Tourneur, and stars Simone Simon and uh, Kent Smith. It concerns uh, the exploits of a young woman, uh, Irena Dubrovna, 
who falls in love with Oliver, a uh, American draftsman, and they get married. But uh, the marriage is quickly stymied by the fact that Irena believes herself to be the a descendant of a ancient Serbian curse, where uh, the women turn themselves into panthers when sexually aroused uh, or feel any form of strong emotion. And uh, this causes a great deal of strife, and matters are not helped by the introduction of therapist Dr. Lewis Judd into the equation. And as with all horror films, uh, things take a, gr uh, a tragic and uh, brutal turn in the final reel. It's only 70 minutes, but it's often seen as one of the finest horror films of the 1940s. But that's not why I've chosen it. The reason I've chosen it is because, uh, to my mind, it's one of the most interesting unconscious depictions of autism uh, that exist in the American cinema. I originally came across this film while working on my uh, MA dissertation and was astonished at how things I'd noticed not only in uh, my reading on autism, but also my observations for myself. For reference, I am uh, autistic myself, and indeed I was um, fully diagnosed uh, properly. I have the full seal of approval during the process of writing this uh, dissertation. And the ways that it manifests its interest in autism indirectly are very, very interesting to me because it is about the conflicts between uh, medicine and uh, the, uh, the disabled mind, conversations around touch and the notion of sensory overload, and uh, finally notions of ableism and the concept of an able-bodied state imposing uh, impossible norms onto this poor woman. I uh, rewatched it for this on Monday and was uh, was struck by how well that my um, MA dissertation argument actually held together on a rewatch, which was very, very satisfying. Uh, in fact, I wrote my entire uh, master's dissertation on Val Luton and his films at RKO uh, because I find them to be some of the most endlessly fascinating representations of autism. But yes, so I, I decided as soon as I was asked to come on the podcast, the first thing I thought was, well, it has to be Cat People because it's the film I've known, I know the most. It was my introduction to autism in horror, which I think is a vitally important subject and something I think which will come up in the discussion. So yeah, those are my uh, reasons for talking about Cat People. Fabulous. Well, let's open up the floor then. And uh, yeah, let's get some reactions to this film. Um, I mean, for my part, I thought it was a really, uh, this was the first time I'd seen Cat People. I was aware of it, but um, I'd never watched it before. And I just thought it was a, a, a brilliant film, a really delightful and interesting film with lots of, uh, you know, interesting play of light and shadow and melodrama and film noir and all sorts of things going on. But yeah, let's uh, let's open it up and see what, what others have got to say about the film. So anyone who wants to jump in, please do. Ethan, I thought it was very interesting that you, um, you know, carefully phrased it as an unconscious representation of autism, because, you know, we're talking about 1942 and we have, uh, you know, it's not been much time since uh, Brenner and um, uh, Asperger was both, were both, sorry, Craner, sorry. Craner and Asperger were both sort of conducting independent research on the concept of autism and you know it really wasn't widely understood um in this era so it's it's highly unlikely that uh val luton really knew what autism even was as a concept so maybe you know maybe we should be quite cautious about sort of suggesting this is a a, a literal representation of autism but i think you know 
having a look at your thesis, you know, we can see loads of parallels that sort of seem to chime very, very um, harmoniously with some of these concepts. Thank you, actually, for bringing that up, Alex, because that's something I did want to address. And I'm pleased that you uh, brought it up so early, which is that, yes, you are absolutely right. The concept of autism is a is is arguably here used in a sort of a quasi retroactive term. Obviously, uh, the concept of autism doesn't come about until the late 40s. And even then, there's a lot of sort of uh, discussion around what is it? Uh, where does it come from? So on and so forth. And I, and the reason I've, and I think I should also stress that I, when I say unconscious, I am of the belief that what we now know as autism has probably had many, many different names in the past and has been subject to many, many different labels, usually pejorative, as to uh, how we understand mental difference. So I'm thinking in particular of something like uh, The Wild Child, uh, the Truffaut film, which has often been considered as being about uh, an autistic child. Uh, and that was a real case in the uh, 18th century. And there's obviously large amounts of debate over was Mozart autistic, blah, blah, blah. The problem, obviously, with you know, applying sort of that sort of template to these, uh, these uh, individuals is that it becomes schematic and it, um, it effectively it's pointless because we'll never fully know. But I think it's, I think it's, in my mind, I think it's very useful to consider these films, if not direct metaphors for autism, at least having some sort of potential for an autistic reading, because it taps into universal things that autistic people feel in a sort of a universal sense of so the sense of isolation, the sense of shame, the, 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 the special interest, the repetitive fear, for example. And that's another reason why I've chosen it, which is that I find that a large amount of horror from this era, from my era, specifically the 30s to the 60s, taps into a lot of sort of fears of mind and body, both for the character and for the audience uh, watching the uh, character, that feel very close to sort of the autistic experience of the world, even if accidentally. And so... Um, so while you are right, it's very, very dangerous to say, you know, to put our hand down and say, Irena is definitely autistic. It's nevertheless very interesting to see how these films indirectly speak of a truth that even they weren't aware of, so to speak. I wonder, Ethan, if you can identify some of the elements of the film that that, that feel autistic. Um, I, I'm going to imagine there's something around touch in there. Main character Irina doesn't want to be touched, which is a kind of motivating factor in the narrative for the for the breakdown of the of the new newly constructed relationship. Um, that 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 the marriage somehow falls as a as a result of that. And um, yeah, could you just tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, certainly. So you're right to bring up the touch, and I think that. Uh, for those who are listening who may not be aware, uh, for some uh, autistic people, including myself, suffer from an inability to process large amounts of sensory stimuli, touch or noise, for example. Basically, it's such an overwhelming sensation and it produces such powerful emotion that the body uh, and the brain shut off in some respects. They shut off communication or they shut off other aspects that would require sort of um, an outwards persona as a way to compensate and deal with this. 
And certainly, I think you can read Arena in terms of she is um, mortally afraid of touch, but cannot understand why, so attaches an ancient story from her homeland as a way to make sense of these very specific sensory diffractions and overloads. And uh, the cat story becomes very interesting in that because her, arguably her special interests are the object or subject which she fixates over in a, um, in a repetitive manner is obviously cats. Uh, she is um, first seen sketching a, a leopard at the zoo and she returns to the leopard at repeated moments. It's a very important motif, which ends at the, uh, obviously at the final climax. But um, she chooses to live next to the zoo itself so that she can hear the lions roaring from her uh, room, which I think is quite uh, uh, notable. And another interesting one is how she, at uh, one point, uh, remarks, I like the darkness, it's friendly which obviously may just involve that she enjoys the solitude of night, but um, certainly I know of autistic individuals who do not like bright sunlight or bright light of any sort because of the physical pain it causes them. So you could, in theory, you could certainly interpret that if you were so inclined as having a certain autistic bent to it. I mean, if we were to sort of pinpoint within the horror sort of motif what mechanism the film's really struggling or grappling with it we're sort of talking about a feline uh werewolf kind of phenomena and so you know if we were to extrapolate this hypothesis that Irina's uh, autistic and this is all a sort of metaphor you know what do we do with that problematic at the end this sort of turning into a sort of murderous monster i mean is that sort of consistent with the rest of the thesis that you're proposing or or is that just sort of like okay we're here we're entering into the world realm of fantasy and and actually can we expand on that you know what do we do with that problematic i i can but only by being maddeningly maddeningly obtuse and saying why not a little from column a and a little from column b so you are right also to bring up sort of the werewolf and the sort of the cat monster um uh, archetype, uh, which I sort of loosely think of in sort of a similar way as what I call a transformation film. So a character moves from one rather placid sort of a manageable state to a more, shall we say, a more open sort of natural state of sort of uh, emotions everywhere, violence and rage and fear, all of these emotions are sort of operating on the most primal instinct possible and causing damage or causing harm. Uh, the archetypal gothic version of this is obviously Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but also the werewolf transformation is sort of, has been definitely read as sort of a, of a sort of a, a revealing of a libido or revealing of sort of the, the, the icky id, shall we say. In terms of, um, is it problematic and is it complicated? Yes, I will freely admit and go and say, I do feel like you can read it as like, a, well, what does this mean for autism? Is this does this suggest that autistic people have a tendency or a potential to, uh, shall we say, react in ways that are not socially acceptable under intense stress? And yes, I think that's very possible. But I also think that's, for me, that's certainly been something that uh, I've had to come to accept about myself, which is n that not every response to stimuli I will have is, will be socially acceptable in one way, shape or form. And I will have to end up doing things that are a little bit 
out of the ordinary. I, I would I would pause here and say that I that to my knowledge I've not turned into a panther and murdered a man yet. But um, I, I think it's important to acknowledge the fact that. Uh, uh, existing on the autism spectrum in some way, shape or form, or just indeed in neurodiversity, does often include a lot of sort of quite negative emotions, or sort of culturally negative emotions like pain or anger, or the sort of the frustration of repression at having to deal with an able, with an ableist society or an able-bodied society, which constantly forces you and your entire being into various channels according to how they see you as an individual. So I, I think that you are, again, very right to bring up something which is potentially very sticky, so to speak, but it's something that does need to be brought up because, yeah, uh, it, it's not all sunshine and lollipops, so to speak, although I get the sense that uh, I, I might be overstepping boundaries by saying that, but anyway. It is, of course, worth noting that the man that she does eventually end up attacking in her panther form is is somebody that that is not particularly pleasant is someone who has made um uh, you know unwanted unwarranted sexual advances upon her towards the end this is dr judd the the psychologist who seems to have been well it, on the one hand seems to have sort of been seduced by her in that sort of way in which she's sort of a little bit of a kind of femme fatale a little bit of a kind of this kind of sexy catwoman type type figure and there's this idea that she's she's a seductive figure and um which ties into that sort of feline side of things as well. Um, but on the other hand, he's also this man who is in a position of authority, in a position of power. Um, he's a, a psychologist um, and he has been, um, you know, supposedly engaging her in therapy, which she hasn't really been sort of taking much of a part into. He also doesn't, re he doesn't absolutely flat, does not believe in this kind of curse thing that 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 is that is supposedly happening he doesn't believe in her in her ability to turn into a panther and so on and then yeah towards the end we get this this moment where he he pretty much forces himself on her you know kissing her and hugging her and it's very clear that she's not she does not want to be part of this and in an interesting way it's like it's, it's interesting you hearing about you know you're talking about uh, her um aversion to being touched and you can really see it in that in that moment and she sort of stiffens up and her face is like very uh, blank and she's just not happy at all or comfortable in that moment and and then that turns into her the moment when she attacks you know properly it's the first time really that she properly attacks somebody although there's been there's been a lot of build-up to it but this is that this is the moment where it actually happens and it's it is worth noting that it, it happens upon someone who is not a very nice person and i wonder if that um relates to um because I get the feeling that this film has got a kind of interesting critique to make against, uh, you know, psychoanalysis, basically, because yeah, the, the the main psychoanalytic character is a bit of an armchair psychoanalysis psychoanalysis person. Yeah, he he, as I say, doesn't turn out to be particularly pleasant or particularly nice, and in a way, she's sort of bursting out and taking revenge on him in a, in a sort of way, in a way in which was not entirely horrific but was actually kind of almost triumphant in some ways yeah i don't know what what i don't know what you think about that ethan and whether is there is a kind of 
a thread here of a, a critique of, of psychoanalysis. I certainly think there is a critique of psychoanalysis. And you're very, um, thank you also for bringing that up, because that's another point that I had on my sheet of things to talk about, which was that this film was made during, obviously, World War II. It's during that period when, um, also when a large number of individuals from Europe who were uh, Jewish or of, shall we say, a, a more liberal bent were fleeing the Nazis and were often coming to America and setting up practices, often in Hollywood, actually. David O. Selznick famously was under psychoanalysis for a long time and then he went on to make uh, Hitchcock's Spellbound. So I certainly think that you can read that sort of very then modern fascination with psychoanalysis and the mind and sort of the inner labyrinths of the mind and the, the dream sequence where um, a Judd appears dressed as uh, King John uh, and there's the whole repeated metaphor of the key, which in some respects feels very on the nose watching it something like 80 years, uh, 79 years on. I certainly think it can be read as a critique because Judd very clearly fails to engage with Irina on any level apart from what he sees to be as, um, in other words, a very silly woman uh, believing fantasies about herself, which are uh, eventually it causes his downfall because he simply does not believe and eventually forces himself upon her. So I do think that um, uh, Judd's character is, uh, sorry, the character of Judd is meant to be negative and it's meant to be uh, a repudiation of, of certainly scientific arrogance. And that's a thing which reappears in a number of the Val Luton horrors. I Walked With a Zombie, for example, is about a woman who, um, no surprises, walks with a zombie, but it's a, uh, a figure from, uh, in terms of this is a Haitian zombie. And so it's a woman who appears to have had, suffered a catastrophic injury and now is a, basically is a catatonic. And the, the film never makes it clear whether she is a sufferer of disease, a sufferer of a curse, a sufferer of some sort of psychological ailment. And The Nile of the Dead takes that even further with a character who is cataleptic and fears being buried alive and then obviously has her worst nightmares come true and you're never quite sure if she is possessed or she has in fact gone insane. So I certainly think that it's a reoccurring theme in Luton, the uh, sort of uh, the just the constant undermining of psychological pretension by suggesting something more deep-rooted and more complex uh, roiling under the surface. Yeah, I feel like, you know, a lot of these uh, psychoanalytic scenes and discussions were set up to to be knocked over very easily. Um, you know, the hypnosis scene at the beginning, uh, what her first, her first and probably only explicit session with Judd, um, is just like a light shining on her face in the dark. And, and somehow that's meant to allow her to engage in this sort of super reveal of her dark fantasies of this mythology. And then he turns the light off and she's awake again, <laughs> and has no recollection of what happened. Um, so that, I mean, that's a bit hokey in its own right, but um, just the sort of swaggering arrogance of Judd, you know, as he sort of reports back to the husband and is clearly acting duplicitously where, you know, all he really cares about are the interests of Irina's husband and you know he's, he's ready to like annul the marriage or um, get her committed whatever's easiest for Oliver so that he can sort of move on and forget about this strange woman um, you know so it's all it's always 
the the sort of ethical practice within it is you know ridiculously poor to the extent where he sort of hits on his client doesn't hit on his client no forcefully <laughs> imposes himself on her despite knowing that she's um, averse to touch and hasn't kissed her husband yet yeah so it, i mean it, it's sort of you know a caricature of bad practice and what's very interesting and then i'll stop talking for a little bit because i feel like i've <clears throat> yacked on for 20 years is that um uh judd reappears uh in a later film in the cycle called the seventh victim which um is possibly my favorite of the films uh I, it is incredible very very dark film where he appears as a psychoanalyst for a very deeply depressed young woman called jacqueline and uh, while he seems to be a lot more empathetic and understanding of uh, this woman's plight, ultimately he is very ineffective and arguably helps cause the final tragedy of the film, which I won't spoil. But um, it's interesting how he appears as a sort of a figure of rationality in both of his efforts, uh, Tom Conway, and then he is thoroughly undermined uh, in the process. Um, through various elements of uh, Luton's screenplays. I mean, this issue of, um, you know, how the sort of psychology sciences, psychoanalysis, psychiatry, how they grapple with uh, diverse belief systems is quite an interesting and still relevant one. You know, we have psychiatric wards where people are sort of being diagnosed with thought disorders or psychosis and experiencing sort of florid sort of fantasies. But then I've heard reports of religious people returning back to their sort of um, more grounded state, but still having strong religious beliefs and the, the psychiatrist not really being able to meaningfully differentiate between a sort of cultural norm that's not their own and uh, states of madness. And so it, it sort of shows these very strong secular biases, which are played out within this film where the idea of some sort of um, uh, non-rational or, or mythic curse is just w without any thought or analysis whatsoever is dismissed when I guess the, um, you know, the audience is in the know that obviously there's some substance there and it just sort of you know it, it sort of renders psychiatry and psychoanalysis as totally impotent to deal with stuff that it doesn't believe it understands already it cannot sort of seem to grapple with anything beyond its own uh, sort of framework no, absolutely absolutely um I, th I think it's interesting i think alex you you described arena as in the film she's she's portrayed as a strange woman and i i wondered about her identity as an immigrant from eastern europe and how she's contrasted to um her husband's friend alice who's seen as a much more grounded sort of um affectionate she's kind of a foil for arena like she represents what I think the film is trying to say womanhood should be like what a woman should be like. She should, she's, she's funny, she's charming in, in a very specific way. And Arena just, she, she can't perform that womanhood. So she's seen as strange and foreign and, um, dark. Um, and it made me think I've seen, um, 
some discussions recently, and, and this is a bit um, heavy, but there's, it's been around since 2000, apparently, but it's called the Cassandra phenomenon. And it's um, basically uh, neurotypical partners of autistic adults uh, sort of have chat rooms and stuff. And they, they say they have Cassandra phenomenon where their, their emotional and physical needs can't be met by their autistic partner. And they almost frame it as kind of like almost abuse. It's really weird. Like to me, it seems like it's down to their inability to communicate with someone different to themselves that the neurotypical partner. Um, so I just thought that was interesting. And, and I think Irina's fear of transformation into the amber or cat-like creature, um, it's kind of, she doesn't know how to, in my eyes, she doesn't know how to process emotion she's scared of the emotions that she she doesn't let herself feel that because it's too much so she she hears this this story and she takes it very literally a folktale and she uses that to explain her experience i quite agree with you i quite agree with you john james and i think it's very interesting you bring up sort of alice and the um sort of the the, the sort of the concept of her as a foil to arena i certainly think the film is trying to i'm not quite sure that the film is so clear-cut as to say arena is you know uh, in uh, arena's otherness is entirely bad or entirely sort of shall we say not what a woman should be like i think in some respects i think it's a bit more critical than that of roles for women and sort of socially mandated roles for women and it's notable as well that um big old spoilers uh, in the film that comes after this curse of the cat people which is uh, directed by robert wise irena uh, is long gone but um alice and oliver are married and have a child and proceed to do the exact same thing to um to their child and just completely misunderstand her and uh, isolate her and try and force her into these very specific sort of uh, holes which she cannot fit into so I think that I think there is certainly I think you can certainly read an element of critique uh, in as much as it it, uh, it does try to suggest that Oliver and uh, Alice are right for each other, if nothing, because they seem to sort of lack the emotional depth that Arena does. Although in Arena's case, it is so deep that it is frightening, as you rightly say, and it is overwhelming. And the Pope's sale is absolutely, in my mind, a way to 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 make it make sense in her head. As for the Cassandra syndrome. I had never heard of that. That's really, really depressing and unsettling uh, as, as, as somebody on the spectrum, because it does make you, because I, I think that uh, a reason why I think I feel, to, to loosely bring it back to the film, why I feel quite connected to Arena is because in some respects, I do feel a little like Arena. I feel, you know, uh, isolated by sort of the strength of my own emotions sometimes. And I feel very, I, I feel very, very strongly to the point where it's painful. And so... Uh, that sort of lack of ability to connect with others and that feeling of you're always going to be second best in one way, shape or form does certainly ring true for me. And certainly people I've talked to about cat people have also agreed that it feels very, very familiar for them. Interestingly, a number of uh, young women I know who are autistic uh, have very much connected to the story of Arena and her sort of sense of 
transformation, especially into cats. I know a lot of autistic women who like cats, but that's by the by. Um, yeah, I was I was just going to pick up on that. Um, I mean, it was interesting for me uh, watching it as as an autistic woman and, and sort of reading it from these two perspectives. So, I mean, I think the common one is like the feminist reading, but then also looking it through a more a lens of uh, autism was very interesting as well, because, I mean, uh, <laughs> if I can talk about like experience, um, there's sort of a duality to the this, the ableism and uh, having some kind of relationship with someone who feels like they have to take you under their wing or look after you or attend to your needs and then they're not really aware of what they're getting themselves into and then later find out that you know there's a lot autistic people do you know aren't completely aligned to neurotypical society obviously but a lot of people don't really expect that because a lot of people just don't know about it and then as a result of that there's neglect and just casual ableism and um you know the sort of gaslighting that comes from uh Oliver and the therapist specifically you know like denying like oh you're making this up whatever and that that spoke to me specifically especially because um for for like autistic women it's especially hard to uh get a diagnosis and it's often misdiagnosed just as an anxiety disorder, which a lot of the time it is the case. So I found that really interesting and something that I could um, relate to. And, and uh, in regards to the, the her actual transformation or um, the, the violence that comes out of it. And, and it, again, it also links to that misogynistic trope of the hysterical woman, but also the uh, the hysterical autistic, I suppose, as well, which is something I've encountered. Again, being gutted into thinking that I'm overreacting or, you know, a person is um, responding too strongly to a certain thing and it's seen as, like you said before, it's seen as socially unacceptable or it's seen as dangerous. Uh, and, it's, and it's more common, I think, than a lot of people would, would see because... Uh, even even you know the best neurotypical people with the best intentions will go into it wanting to to help and not really understand what that involves and that's not a bad thing on the part of an autistic person um but it's the, the misunderstanding of you know what we go through and what we have to experience i saw there was a discussion going on um on twitter a few like a few weeks ago um and it was a person saying you know when will people understand that um, there's nothing inherently autistic people don't experience anything inherently wrong they don't suffer it is the neurotypical society that is set up to uh to cause these issues and I I, I understood the point but I, I I disagreed with it in some sense because I think there's a lot of stuff that um we as autistic people go through that isn't inherently caused by neurotypical society you know we have uh, meltdowns we have sensory processing issues that are actually very traumatic and not necessarily imposed by society or by a certain environment um, and I don't think it's uh, right to just put that on um, this is all caused by other people there are some things that people suffer with and um, in relation to looking at the film 
there's a sort of denial that she experiences these things um, because no one's really causing her any harm when of course they are. But um, yeah, it's it's just a, it, it makes the person feel like they don't have anything to, there's nothing wrong that they have to feel bad about, which all links back to the sort of the gaslighting around people with disabilities. But yeah, that's um, from my perspective, it was interesting to, see it like that and and like you said Ethan I definitely resonated with the character from that perspective quite quite frankly I couldn't have said it better myself that was yeah you're absolutely I think you're absolutely on the money with everything you said you're absolutely right and um it's very very interesting as well to get um a female autistic perspective on the film as well because obviously I am cis male and so I'm sort of approaching it certainly from a very from a very different perspective so i was aware that some of the some of the ideas that i was sort of juggling may be should i say blinkered by my own identity but i'm very pleased that you res- found some sort of resonance with irena and her plight and indeed the, the the elements of gaslighting which are absolutely there uh, and really that sort of uh, an, an idea, that sort of resonation is something which has sort of carried me through to my PhD thesis. And I'm interested in working out how we can apply like a, an autistic reading to horror, almost like a queer reading as a way to sort of almost place ourselves back into the culture in one way, shape or form, or at the very least provide some sort of moving picture uh, analysis moving picture analogy or example as to what it feels like to be autistic or what it feels like to experience these things so i certainly think um yes so everything you said is a big weight off my mind <laughs> jumping back a few points to uh georgia what you were saying what you, you know the way you framed this um the discussion of this film within explicitly sort of the neurodiversity paradigm and sort of how it connects with sort of discussions about, you know, whether the social model can explain every aspect of um, autistic suffering or whether aspects of it are, um, you know, whether suffering actually is somehow connected to autism itself rather than society. I think that's a very, you know, interesting thing to be sort of, uh, delving into and trying to relate to this film I think you know the idea that um, you know because autistic people experience suffering then it's easy to claim that there's something inherently disordered about autism I think has a relationship here with the fact that the majority the majority of the suffering um, Irina experiences is through her environment and her the community around her totally um, being unaccommodating of her forms of difference and there is something clearly sort of um, uh, difficult about being a cat person uh, in this narrative I mean the more I talk about this the more absurdly sensitive the topic is and ridiculous the comparison is so I'm, I'm, I'm getting increasingly more delicate in the way I'm trying to phrase this but I think what I'm trying to get towards really is that 
you know, if we try and sort of push this, push the social model of disability into this actual discussion, I think, you know, the, the film very much falls on the side of the debate that most, or if not all of Irena's suffering comes from the social aspects of prejudice and um, inability to accommodate her needs and all of the expectations around her, helping her internalize this sort of uh, prejudice or encouraging her to sort of um, push her to the point where she needs to commit suicide you know it, it very much falls on the side of the debate that that um, uh, disability is socially constructed but it also has elements of um, you know danger and, and suffering in the sense that she does literally transform in the film into this sort of uh, version of humanity that that um, uh, that has some sort of acute aspects of danger or suffering in it. Um, so it it's also doesn't go entirely the other, that, in what, that one direction. But I think the, the most interesting aspect of it for me is that she seems to be the expert in herself at all points in the narrative. She is the one who has a nuanced understanding of this mythology that uh, is well informed by a community that understands it well. And as she tries to introduce it to the rest of this sort of neurotypical, let's say, uh, population, it's just totally rejected and everybody's projecting their own dominant views on her status. So, yeah, I think the, the sort of neurodiversity paradigm really helps understand um, Irena's suffering in this film much, much better than anything inherently uh you know, disordered about her cat person status. It's worth also just uh, teasing apart. Uh, I mean, just to add to that, I think just teasing apart a little bit the the actual myth itself that she uh, sort of latches onto, because I think it's actually quite interesting when you sort of it, it's only there's a kind of brief scene where she explains it a little bit 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 more. It sort of explains the history of it, um, and actually the sort of the steps of that are, are, are quite interesting in many ways because the idea is that that she was part of or she, sort of her kind of descendants were part of um, no not her descendants her ancestors were part of this uh sort of village in in serbia where they were kind of they were all christians i think uh, was the idea and they got sort of turned towards this uh, kind of witchcraft and sort of devil worship and sort of the 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 kind of evil side of Christianity, but only having after being enslaved by a kind of invading force. I think they're the Mamelukes, if I remember right. And my yes, the Mamelukes. Mamelukes. My history's not strong, so I don't really know who the Mamelukes are necessarily, or necessarily anything about the Serbian history. But it, 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 what's important there is that they are an enslaved people. So they were kind of oppressed and then have, through that oppression, have turned towards witchcraft and devil worship and so on. And then through that have become the cat people. And then King John of Serbia comes through and he sort of sorts the situation out by driving away the cat people and the cat people end up, some of them get killed, most of them get killed and some get sort of lost, you know, driven out into the hills. The most sort of wicked and wise, I think they say, of them get driven out to the hills. And those are the ones that sort of survive. And that's why this continues. But it's, it's interesting sort of seeing that again in a sort of neurodivergent, neurodiverse paradigm, because it again, it's, 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 it's people who are being oppressed by an, uh, a, another group and who are then therefore turning to a different way of being um, in order to try to resist what's happening or to try and sort of 
almost fight back a little bit. And while, of course, yeah, it's, it's, it's witchcraft and it's turning into cats. And so it's kind of, you know, it's, it's a cult and it's dark and it's, and it's negative. But in, a, in another sort of way, there's a, you can kind of, you know, argue for it for being a little bit of a kind of rebellion, a little bit of a sort of a pushback of the, you know, of a way of being. Um, and I like that that was quite a carefully constructed myth in that way and that it sort of related to Irena. You say it sounds absurd, and yet, uh, if I tell you that I do actually know a number of autistic people who quasi-believe in witchcraft and sort of the supernatural and the, the, the occult, to, to put it bluntly, and they're very dear friends of mine, uh, obviously it's, and it's interesting as well, because I've had, and I'm not going to give names away because that's just not what I do, but I've had conversations with them around, uh, one particular one around a... Um, an event which happened to this person and it found and we found that there was a perfectly rational explanation for it and and me being like 21 no 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 about 22 23 and going feeling all smug inside went aha you see you see this is this is what it is and then then they said to me something which was absolutely which knocked me off my feet which was at the end of the day, it's not the fact that I believe this. It's not the fact that this was wrong. It's the fact that I believed it. It's what I felt. And I think that's very important for uh, thinking about cat people and thinking about um, Irena's belief in the cat, uh, in the cat people uh, myth, which again is often sort of, which is very interesting, constructed around Christian lines as well, sort of notions of morality, is that it provides her with a belief system it provides her with a schemata from which she can work out her world, not only in terms of her own identity, but also her values and her moral compass. So I think it's very, I think it's very interesting that in some respects you can read it in some respects as a reappropriation of, um, or a reappropriation of a sort of an ancient um, stereotype or a myth that's designed to denigrate. Uh, her people but at the same time it's also it's it's also i feel a bit more uh, uh it, it very clearly does crush her as 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 a uh, as a concept because even though it provides her with um an understanding of herself that otherwise she would not have it still makes her dreadfully unhappy and dreadfully isolated and um i mean there's the scene where uh, she wants she desperately wants to touch oliver but locks herself in the other bedroom. And uh, as he goes, good night, Irene, you can see her hunched against the door, desperately sort of scrabbling at, almost scrabbling at it to try and, uh, almost as if she wishes to break free from her own uh, uh, sort of, sort of uh, ideas, if you wish. But then the sort of the, the, the yowling of the big cats suggests uh, sort of that she will always be pulled back to it. And I think that's a very poignant scene in that respect. Just picking up on those those thoughts about Christianity and, and ancient belief systems, there was there was another one that jumped out at me, which was in the scene of, of the, in the museum um, where she's looking at the boats and then told by the happy couple that her husband has become um, with the other woman that uh, you know that, that that that's not for her, and and she goes downstairs and there's a sort of long pause on the stairs where she's she's next to an Egyptian um, figure, which is, um, I think, the, the, the half man, half dog, the Anubis, god of, um, god of the underworld. And that's, that struck me, um, partly because I really lo love Egyptian figurines, 
Um, but it, it struck me as, a, you know, another animal reference. Um, here she is literally going down into a sort of underworld. It's an underworld associated with deathliness. Um, and another another system in which she's on the side of the of the dark, you know, and, and there's this sort of this splitting that you seem to be talking about in in cultures that that has been with us for forever, where um, you know what what gets to be neurotypical is is on the side of the good, and the and and what doesn't fit that is sort of pushed outside of it. So th- those were my thoughts as you were you were speaking a- a- about Christianity. But I was also thinking a bit earlier when Georgia, you were talking about um, a- about uh, that the possibility of when we think about neurotypicality through the social model. Um, you know whether it's something that's imposed or whether there is suffering outside of that. And I I was thinking about the Gothic as as a really strong paradigm for that and how it it sort of suggests well it offers the possibility you know is the world gothic because if you don't fit it it just appears really overwhelming and strange and frightening and rejecting um and black and white that's is that an image of of neurotypicality for a person who doesn't fit it as well as for queer people and all sorts of other um identifications that don't fit the 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 great western norm um or does the gothic um represent something that is 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 actually quite specific to autism Uh, and i seem to get more of that from what you were saying georgia which is sort of that's you know that feeling of of meltdowns of excess of sensory overload does the gothic address that in particular Um, it tends to dramatize sensory experiences you know the way that film is shot I think quite beautifully with those very harsh lights um it seemed to connect film noir with the gothic with the sublime with states of big feeling for me and I and I liked that a lot I thought it was really interesting to to think about autism through through this this genre that that has has a world of film attached to it but also worlds of literature that come before that yeah I I definitely I definitely agree and I definitely resonate with that um especially you know the use of the shadows uh throughout the film when um especially when Irina is uh attacking the the therapist and then you see these these scrambling shadows on the wall and and in a lot yeah a lot of moments in the film everything does feel very dramatic and overwhelming and I suppose it does reflect that sort of terrifying perspective of someone who is just trying to navigate the world step by step I mean it does feel with um, Irina that there's a lot of things she does want to do and she wants to be like Alice who is you know the ideal down-to-earth woman but she can't because of the way that she stands in the world the way that she the way that she is um, which again is is something imposed on society, but um, at the same time, the thing that arises from her strong emotional reactions is the thing that is frightening to people, which re- which does kind of relate to um, meltdown and how other people react to the autistic meltdown and how people deal with it, um, because a lot a lot of the, well, a lot of the time when you when people are trying to 
get help for how to deal with meltdowns when you so for example when you look it up on the internet you see about how to deal with children having tantrums and how to differentiate that from a meltdown but it's very difficult to find that sort of help as an adult because a lot of the time it is um synonymous with just a temper tantrum or an outburst of emotion which is seen as bad because other people can't deal with it so I feel like all these visual cues definitely relate to her health sense of helplessness as being you know an inherently emotional person which isn't a bad thing but is to the people around her and it's quite a, a trapping thing to be in because she cannot exist freely even within her own set of um like symptoms I suppose um I think as well um what interests me about gothic is this this fear of the sort of um atavistic the the past coming back to the present um you know what what defines a person versus an animal um or a beast and um I think that does occur in, in cat people because Arena is is sort of bringing back this this almost forgotten cultural um, story, and it doesn't quite fit in this modern um, America. Um, and I I just thought it was interesting how the folklore, but also the psycho psychoanalysis, which might be seen as as um, foreign, I guess as well, doesn't quite fit and doesn't explain things. But then I was thinking about how o Oliver and Alice work at a shipbuilding company, and it's quite um, mathematical, precise. And I thought of the ship as as a, a symbol of the new world, as in. Um, colonizing America um yeah I just wondered how I thought it was interesting how they stood in opposition these sort of older practices or foreign practices versus this this very scientific shipbuilding practice I think I think uh I, I've deliberately been quiet because uh this this is actually my thesis um but you are both right um the, the sort of the, the, the emphasis on the shadow players with the texture of the texture of emotions, how I call it, and also the sort of um, arena almost functioning as a dark double, if you wish, or indeed you may even see uh, Alice as a light double of arena, and so you, you, uh, and with the past coming to haunt them. But yes, you, I, I think that sort of sort of the, the gothic's usual sort of interest in the past and sensory. Uh, sensory overload and sens sensory hyperstimuli is very um, is very use is very useful when coming to talk about autism because, as Georgia rightly said, there is absolutely nothing out there for adults uh, who are autistic and may or may not be having a meltdown. Um, I, I have yet to have one in public, but um, um, I, I don't I don't envy the opportunity to have one. And for people who are adults, I feel like often so much of sort of socially mandated uh, expression of emotion is very sort of small and measured 
and a lot of it is sort of kept inside and especially that's an, I think that's also quite an English thing as well but using these films in some way though they were never meant as such and they should never be seen as a one-to-one analysis do help in sort of showing to people look this is how it feels to be you know the sensations that you may be experiencing now when watching this film or you know the ideas that are supposed to be coming from this bit of film well that's how i feel in this situation or this situation and i find the gothic particularly interesting in that respect and i find sort of that gothic's interest in madness as well um by which i mean sort of that sort of uh slightly Foucauldian notion of madness being a social construct as well very very interesting and very germane to discussions of neurodivergence and how it has been regimented and controlled by a neurotypical, un- un- unca- unknowing, shall we say, an unknowing neurotypical world, which has led to people like Bruno Bettelheim being seen for uh, for a period of time as being the leading light in autism research, when in reality things were much, much bleaker, and the, the, the horrible notion of touch therapy, uh, which... Mm-hmm. Which we will go into, but it relates, I think, quite nicely to uh, cat people. I can just add to that. I I think it's really interesting how this film sets up those questions about where feelings go, and I think that that has been something that's been a, attached to autism right from from the start. And what you were talking about then, Ethan, reminds me of Eugene Bloiler diagnosing the condition back in 1911 as a condition of excess you know hallucination linked linked to schizophrenia and then with Kanna, the much more well-known one you know that and i suppose that that it swaps that autistic people don't have enough feelings you know so first of all it's too much for 50 years and then and then it's not enough but i mean what that suggests actually is there is such a narrow window in which the right emotion is reached but it's in and fascinating the way that autism can mark either extreme of that you know too much or too little so sort of, I guess coming back to what, what also what you were saying at the beginning about how autism has been you know a, a kind of moniker for all sorts of things throughout throughout time we can see in the 20th century it's certainly been a moniker about what is acceptable around levels of feeling I, I think you're absolutely right and um I mean, I, I have I have the belief entirely and scientifically that there are two two things. One that if you're to meet an autistic person, it's either one or the other. There is no middle ground. That will always be an excess of some description in in terms of emotion. And I've discovered that in quite a few autistic people I know personally. Uh, although that may be a hideous generalisation. And the other one is is that I think that still the concept of autism is very loose it's it's i mean it's, it's it's plastic still there's a lot of research been going on into where it comes from not just the emotion but also what causes it is it genetic is it um psychological which we now know to be not true it may well be that within our lifetime my lifetime that the concept of autism mutates and changes again into more accurate more specific diagnoses relating to various groups of individuals who now who now occupy the autism spectrum obviously i may be completely wrong but i think it's i i i find that very interesting as well is that how there's still it's still very much an undiscovered country in terms of how we understand it 
and the new uh, and the well the neurodivergent movement has made a number of very useful strides in terms of bringing autism and indeed neurodivergence to the fore in terms of public awareness cultural awareness there's still so much that we don't know both as in terms of general population but also as autistic people and neurodivergent people in general i want to just just say um <laughs> one thing that came to mind whilst i was watching this maybe this is a little bit of a silly comment but it reminded me of i did a talk a couple of years ago um as part of my phd and at the end of it an autistic person came up to me at the end and uh for some reason we got onto the topic of cats and dogs and uh they said something to me which uh which i <laughs> i found really interesting and amusing and fascinating at the time where they said they consider all uh, cats to be autistic and dogs to be neurotypical um, because dogs are always in your face. They always want you to look at them. They've always wanted you to have eye contact with them. They're always got bounding energy. They're always running around and there is always me, me, me with dogs. Whereas cats are much more elusive and much more, they will um, spend time on their own. And they, sometimes they like being touched, but other times they don't like being touched. And, and I it was a really funny comment. And that's what, uh, yeah, that came to mind as I was watching this. And I just, I just wondered if anybody else had any opinions on the, uh, the cat-dog uh, autism neurotypicality <laughs> divide. I think there's actually a, a tongue-in-cheek book called All Cats Have Asperger's Syndrome. And I think there's a follow-up, maybe, that all dogs have ADHD. It's a bit, <laughs> oh, I've just looked it up. There's one called All Birds Have Anxiety. It's a bit dehumanising, but it is just tongue-in-cheek and funny. Yeah, but it is interesting. I, I don't know if there is, I, I might, I'm putting this out there a little bit, but it, it, I don't know if there is a, because, okay, so I'm sort of, sort of saying this from the point of view of um, somebody who, so my sister is autistic, and she much prefers cats to dogs. I mean, she can't stand dogs. She, she's actually quite frightened of them. She doesn't like them when they bark. Um, she doesn't like their energy. She's very wary of, of dogs. But she loves cats. Well, this might be because we, we partly, partly because we always had cats when we were growing up. But I also wonder if, they don't know if, if cats do coordinate somewhat a little bit with, with autism a bit better than perhaps dogs do or other animals do. Um, and, it, and it, I just thought, thought that that was interesting, that, that, that there is potentially a connection there between cattiness and the feline and the, the autistic way of being and whether that's just found a kind of natural marriage, I suppose, in this film, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That, uh, that was just a, a little thought that I had in my head, but it, it was quite amusing. <laughs> yeah, I might be digressing a bit, but um, I've always been more of a dog person, but I think that's because I... So I had a dog growing up who we always used to say was the most autistic thing in our family because he he didn't like being... He was very much like a cat in that sense. So I always found that quite interesting. He didn't like being touched. Would only let you touch him or stroke him when he, you know, asked or, or you know, came over and liked just being by himself. Funnily enough, that was one of the ways where I was like, hang on, I'm a bit like this. <laughs> what does that mean? Because I was diagnosed quite late. I was like, I'm a bit, a bit like my dog. Um, but he was always very, very different from the other dogs. And he didn't he didn't like being around other dogs either. So, um, yeah, yeah, he, he, he could have been. Can I just ask, was your dog a collie, Georgia? No, Lakeland Terrier. Oh, OK, because I had a collie who I 
definitely associate with autism. That fixation, that monotropism, tennis mm. balls can sit there for hours looking at that incredibly smart um, and very neat. I guess it just depends which way you spin it then, doesn't it? I suppose. It does. <laughs> with these I mean, as I, as I said earlier, I know. I, I, in some of my extracurricular activities, um, which I always say are, um, how do I phrase this, conducive to an autistic brain. Uh, some of the group chats I'm in, most of them at the moment are just, oh yeah, I went on a walk, saw this cat, went on a walk, saw this cat, petted cat, here is a picture of my cat, 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 occasionally dog, cat. And uh, there have been numerous discussions of autism um, in that group. So I, I, I can certainly see it. Uh, for what it's worth, I'm a tortoise person, but that's probably because my parents are allergic to cats and dogs. So we grew up with tortoises, maybe the most, um, sort of, they're not feline creatures, but they certainly are creatures who like their own space and are very sort of, I would say easy to, to live with, but then you haven't seen my mum look after the tortoises. But yes, I, I certainly, I certainly like, I certainly feel very connected to uh, to tortoises. I've always been more of a dog person, but then again, at an early age, I was scared of dogs, and um, so I don't know. It's 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 a very it's it's a it's a, it's a whimsical subject, but it's nice we've gotten to something whimsical, and because it's inspired thoughts that are not just academic, which I feel is very nice. Well, to spoil the mood totally. Um... I'm not an animal person at all. And I found this whole discussion very alienating, which helped me identify with uh, Irena when uh, she enters the pet shop and all these animals go berserk and can't stand her presence. And I felt, you know, very connected <laughs> with her experience right then. Last place I want to be is in a pet shop. Yeah, that, that's a very good scene. That's a very, very good scene. But, it, I mean, it is one of the crucial sort of early sort of like uh, indicators or sort of markers of her difference and a sort of you know uh, I mean Oliver this absurd man just goes and buys her a rabbit without her consent and um, or even consultation or you know like he just thinks okay girls must like rabbits that's sort of puts himself into an awkward situation and her as well um, so they have to go and replace this rabbit with something less sort of I don't know desirable she doesn't want the rabbit um yeah and then we're in a situation where she sort of has this fascination with a canary that she gets but she can't actually purchase it herself because she's too threatening to the other animals so i don't know this whole sequence that culminates with her canary dying of fright just by her presence i think is first of all i think it's you know a bit um unfortunate that she's sort of marked as different by the non-neurotypical animals. You know, it sort of extends the argument beyond this sort of socially constructed version of difference that sort of maybe un undermines that that narrative. But no, I just thought it was interesting in relation to everything else we were saying about, um, about this. There's a couple of things which come up there. The first about the, the canary dying of fright. I think it's interesting that how does how does the canary die of fright? Well, she reaches out in her hand and bats at it like a cat basically she is almost a cat with a bird which i found quite interesting as well is that her that her kinship with cats shall we say goes so far as to imitate one which i which i think is a a very interesting conversation about sort of um 
assuming other identities uh, for whatever reason while you are autistic um either uh, obviously the other one is people facing but i think there are more subtle uh, uh, elements in there somewhere uh, and also i think it's it's not a bunny she gets it's a cat it's a little kitten who uh, oliver first buys for her which i think is another very interesting thing as well which is that the kitten just cannot stand the sight of her and hisses at her and I think it also underlines Arena's. Obviously, it does underline Arena's difference, and it underlines the fact that she is just sort of complete poison to these animals who seem to hate her and her energy, so to speak. The sort of the the the, the, the mood she gives off, which is obviously very tense and confrontational towards them. Uh, but also, uh, it's also she's very much trapped between two worlds in that respect. The cats don't like her, even though she feels herself to be a cat and the humans don't understand her and then all she wants to be is a model wife in some respects for Oliver because that's what she thinks she should be so I think that's right so there is there's a lot to be said for um kittens and their various relationships in this film um I have two cats but I also get along with dogs but I was wondering when we were talking about this um how much we project onto these animals um because i mean georgia and janet both said they had dogs that acted more like cats like do, i think the the figure of the cat historically has been associated with more feminine attributes and perhaps you know witchcraft some sort of corruption so i wonder um if we're projecting a bit in general as a society not just us as a group but also um I think the the marker of difference that she she's sort of scary to animals that still is quite interesting because it makes me think of um my husband listens to a lot of true crime podcasts and one of the early signs that sort of lay lay people try to use psychoanalysis and psychology for is that if someone's mean to animals then they're you know obviously a terrible person and um they will grow up to be a serial killer but i mean i do find them a bit um they heavily generalize and they're not that scientific yeah just thought that was interesting okay oh sorry anything uh, going no, no 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 i was uh, i was probably going to go off on a wild tangent but please continue david well i, I was actually going to actually sort of draw things to a to an end uh there but um if you've got anything else you want to just throw in there at the end there ethan before we finish i'll just put in the brief thoughts of maybe we do as a society project a lot onto our animals but then again, I think that makes sense when we consider human uh, society in general sometimes to be quite scary, quite alienating, quite hard to deal with in whatever way, shape or form. And animals provide a provide some form of sort of stability in that respect. They provide a clear and easy to understand series of emotions and movements and actions, which we then absorb as being natural to them. They and that stability, especially for an autistic person, is extremely comforting and soothing. They are effectively having they are another presence in your life without the emotional drain of having to deal with another sentient being, which sounds very macabre and very depressing. But at the same time, I think it's a, a, 
uh, that's something that should be acknowledged. And yeah, you're, John James is absolutely right about sort of the true crime. That whole the whole recent Luca Magnotta story. So I think there is something there, perhaps as well. But um, what do I know? I, I only know tortoises. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I do. I definitely agree with that. We definitely project a lot onto animals, and animals is one of my other uh, real interests. And um, I, I have rabbits and guinea pigs, and I'm always projecting onto them different various characteristics. But it's something that I think, as human beings, we can't help but do. And I and I certainly do find that that angle interesting. That you know, autistic people do find a lot of can find a lot of solace and com companionship with animals, uh, which is important and should be um, acknowledged and and. Uh, maybe better understood in some ways anyway uh we've been we've been talking for a long long time it's been an absolutely brilliant and fascinating discussion um so uh yeah it's been absolutely great to to talk about cat people what a fascinating film a really interesting film so let's now bring everything to a conclusion so i'm going to say uh thank you to uh janet alex john james and georgia for your discussions but an extra special thank you to ethan lyon for joining us for this conversation thank you initially for bringing cat people to us and suggesting it but also for your explanations and your discussions and debates here today um, it's been absolutely fascinating so thank you for joining us ethan thank you very much for having me it's been a real pleasure and um yes i uh, i've very much enjoyed it and i hope you have too very much so i i i think we all have anyway <laughs> thumbs up everywhere okay great um thanks very much uh, join us again for another episode uh, soon um and, and that's the end thank you good night bye bye you have been listening to the autism through cinema podcast hosted by georgia bradburn john james laidlow alex widdleson janet harbord and david hartley and featuring today's very special guest ethan lyon Many thanks to Ethan for agreeing to come on the show and talk to us about this brilliant film. We very much appreciated your time and expertise. Thanks also to our shiny new editor, audio wizard, Leverett Jakes. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. The Autism Through Cinema podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema. We'll be back again in two weeks' time with another slice of neurodivergent cinematics. Bye for now. <laughs>